Okay, so you get to play with fire for a moment. Uh, so I want you to light two candles. We're going to light a purple one and then the pink one next to it. The purple one from last week, this was a, uh, the candle of hope. And today we light the candle of peace. And I'll say a few words on that. All right. You don't have matches? All right. Somebody walked off with matches. All right. You got some coming, I think, right? Okay, good. Very good. So my guess is when you were talking about uh, when God seems silent, uh, when you did talk about that, my guess is that you were talking about times of pain, uh, when you were going through agony. Uh, maybe it was, um, maybe you were a kid and you were having a hard time at school because kids can be tough. Uh, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was when you were a kid and uh, your parents were having a hard time or you lost a parent or a grandparent uh, to death and how hard that is. Sometimes when you're a parent, things are hard. Um, being a parent is hard. By the way, quick word of note to parents, you need to work on the cute factor with your children. They're not quite cute enough. So we need to notch it up a little bit. <laughs> totally kidding. These kids are adorable. I had so much fun uh, playing with them yesterday and I'm so grateful uh, for you parents bringing them here because that was so much fun. We'll do it again. Um, you know, pain comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh, we learned uh, just recently about, you know, a really tragic COVID case uh, where um, just a 23-year-old woman and mother uh, got it and passed away uh, just this past week. And you just think, how can that be, uh, that, that age? And yet it's still with us. Sometimes it's the heartache, um, maybe our partner and ourselves are not getting along well, and so we're just praying to God do something, and it just seems like nothing changes. Uh, we all go through this. This is part of reality of living a human life. Sometimes uh, we do it nationally, uh, and again, most of the time, uh, we feel the absence of God when, uh, when we go through great times of pain or anxiety. Uh, we know that this has happened many times in our nation's history. Anytime we go to war, anytime we're attacked, we wonder. During this whole pandemic, people have been wondering, uh, why isn't God answering our prayers, so to speak? And it seems and feels like God is silent. Well, this is not a new experience. And the people of Israel around the time of Jesus' birth uh, were really experiencing it. And they had hundreds of years behind them where God just felt completely silent. In fact, um, they called it the silence of God. The 300 years of time before Jesus was born, it was looked at as a time of silence from God, from the whole nation of Israel. Can you imagine? Where none of their priests are hearing much. Uh, there aren't any prophets speaking anymore. Uh, nothing in their reality suggests that God is with them. And if God is with them, God certainly seems powerless or distant or uncaring, or maybe even judging the people. 
because first they went into exile under one oppressor, and then they came back, but the oppressor changed, and it was just like they were still in exile, even if their feet were on their same soil. This is the reality of the people uh, during Jesus' life. They were in despair. Uh, the Roman Empire ruled them harshly, and they thought taxes were bad before. It just got way worse under them. And the penalties, if you didn't comply, uh, were suffering, pain, and death. That's despair. There's an interesting uh, Christmas carol that's actually a dark Christmas carol uh, called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it showed up just a few centuries ago. Uh, and it came out of, it has a Cornish uh, origin, even though sometimes the French get credit for it. Uh, and <clears throat> I'm going to sing it for you, like it or not, <laughs> uh, because uh, you need to hear the darkness of this thing. And it's, it's going to be a segue into our, uh, into our meditation time, uh, our quiet, because uh, you need to understand that the context of Jesus' birth uh, was suffering and was pain. And so, and it sounds like I've got harmony today too, which is, which is awesome. <laughs> All right. All right. So just hear the, hear the words and the, it'll be on the screen too. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Yeah, you can sing if you want. That mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. I like this chorus because after every verse of despairing, it's like the chorus reminds us of who God is. Rejoice, rejoice, God with us. God with us, Emmanuel, <clears throat> shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's do verse 2. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Except for sometimes after a long period of time of despair, um, we kind of wonder if we're doing it wrong. I wonder if we're praying it wrong. Are we not praying loud enough, right enough? Are our lives not right enough? So this time when we sing verse 3, we need to kick it up a notch, uh, both, in, um, both in key and in volume. So let's sing it a little higher. 
Oh, come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And this last verse we're going to do, it just amps it up all the more. So let's just take it up another notch in both ways. Let's do it. Oh, come desire of nations bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray together. So God, as we quiet our hearts, bring to mind the areas of our lives where we have sensed your silence. Because we all do. And maybe we all do all the time. So help us, God, to be honest about it. Sometimes we're fearful of being honest about it as, as we might offend you some way and suggesting that you're not speaking to us. But I think we actually honor our relationship with you by acknowledging our pain, acknowledging our frustration, our despair, as we cry out, where are you? Where have you been? We've been calling out, and we just feel like we're getting nothing. You have the freedom to complain to God. It's a very biblical thing to do. God, as we risk honesty with you, as we risk vulnerability with you, as we risk telling you all that is on our hearts, as if you didn't already know, may we find ourselves in a space after having let go and put it on the table 
may we find us ourselves in a space of openness to what you may, might have to say in return, to what you may have to teach us today. Help us be open. Help our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our mind to stretch, and our hearts to soften that we might encounter you today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, we talked a lot about major paradigms of faith and constructs. We mm-hmm. talked about the cataphatic and the apophatic. How many of you introduced those words to your friends to impress them last week, right? Good Greek solid words. Cataphatic, you remember, talks about ways that we put words to describing God. So some of us have a God as a, you know, an old guy with a beard sitting on a throne up in heaven. Uh, And there are myriad images that we have to describe the cataphatic ways of God. And they serve a very good purpose. They give us a handle on things. They help us build a construct because it's very difficult for us us to have a relationship uh, with the abstract. And the cataphatic describes all of those different constructs. And yet, uh, as helpful as those constructs can be, what we learned last week is that sometimes the schemas, the constructs, the paradigms, if they're not uh, flexible, they become confining. And the very things that were helpful in helping us understand God uh, can turn on us and actually restrict our growth and our relationship and faith. And so it's helpful to acknowledge that our images of God, our cataphatic representations of God, need to be held loosely because they cannot fully uh, express the character and nature of God. Meister Eckhart, who was a mystic from years ago, I think I shared this last week, he said, you know, the way we should describe ourselves is we should just lead out with, we're all atheists. If we're honest, we're all atheists. Because as soon as we start to say we're theists, as soon as we start to say we believe in God, we've already attached meaning and description to who that God is. And as soon as we do, (laughs) we've, uh, we've committed an act of idolatry. And we've said that we know more than we really ought. And so that leads us to the apophatic, which just recognizes that Whoever God is, whatever God is, is beyond us. It's mysterious. We know there's a there there, but we don't have words to quite adequately describe it. And so we're left with kind of this meaningful void, which isn't all bad either, uh, because it allows an expansiveness of thinking about God and of relating to God. And yet we kind of have a hard time hugging the void and we have a hard time being personal with the void. And so we need the balance, the cataphatic and the adiphatic. That's what we, apophatic, that's what we looked at last week. And we're going to take that to a new level uh, this week. And next week, I'll get you way into the personal side. How do we deal with this in the person of Jesus? How do we think about Jesus? Because it's, uh, <laughs> Jesus' birth uh, is still extremely controversial uh, today as much as it ever was, and I'll talk to you about that why. And then the next week after that, uh, we'll talk about what does all this mean for us, this, the big so what uh, with all this. So we've got a place to go. And I want to tell you, in case I forget to, at the end of the, the teaching, uh, is that 
Uh, I kicked out an email today on, on the secret Pastor Pete email, so it's not on the big blast that goes out if you signed up through the website, uh, but it's, it's mainly the people who I know to be active crosswalkers. Uh, members are just active visitors and all that, and if you're not on the list, uh, let me know, and you're going to get something from me about every week. And this week's came out about 8 o'clock with the links for uh, the Zoom service, which is going on. Hi, everybody. And also the YouTube live stream. Hello, everybody, on that. Um, but I also included last week's summary of Richard Rohr's uh, meditations because his whole week was dealing with the very thing we started looking at last week. Different voices. You hear a little bit from Rohr, but you also hear from some other brilliant voices all dealing with this. And so you have the whole week uh, worth to look at. You just click on the hyperlink. And I would recommend if you're interested in taking this to a different level, just read one a day and sit with it and see what it does. And if you really want to stretch, uh, then look at yesterday's or Saturday's meditation that's on, on there and let that uh, take you places because it's quite profound. And I have a hunch that some of you are going to have a very difficult time uh, with the meditation uh, that he suggests. So that ought to get you there. All right. Today's context, we're going to take a look at three stories in this time of the silence of God that lead up to the birth of Jesus. And the first story doesn't really have to do with Jesus as much as it does with Zachariah and Elizabeth. And some of you have read these stories and they're familiar to you. I'll eventually get to the text that's on the front of your bulletin. But Zachariah and Elizabeth were these saintly people. They were up in age, they were in retirement age, and they'd lived a very godly life. Everybody respected them and loved them very much and held them in such high regard that this is the model of what faithful living looks like. And yet, even though they were the model of faithful living and being close to God, they still had struggle in their life. Uh, they didn't have kids. And back in that day, um, that was deeply painful, deeply painful now for sure. Uh, but back then, it communicated different things than it does today. In, in our day now, we know, even though as much as we don't know, we know that there are certain things that make it very difficult uh, for people to have children. But back in that day, they just assumed it was God not wanting it to happen, that it was God's wrath in some way. And so here was Elizabeth, and they always put it on the woman. They never thought that it could have anything to do with the man. That's not all that different from today, I guess. Uh, and so uh, it was all on Elizabeth. And so whatever, who knows what was going on, but poor Elizabeth, God didn't show any favor on her. So they were up in age and they had no children, which meant their security was sort of shaky because you kind of look to your kids to take care of you. It was deeply, deeply painful. So you need to understand that Elizabeth and Zachariah knew the pain of the absence of God and one of their deepest heart cries. And of course, they're deeply committed Jewish people and the nation of Israel that was occupied by Rome. And it was not their home anymore. And they felt it all the time. Well, Zechariah was one of these uh, guys that would go and tend to, the, tend to the temple and tend to the cultic practices of ancient Judaism. And they cast lots to determine who would go into uh, the temple uh, inner chambers to light prayers of incense. It's kind of interesting if you read some stuff about this. Um, some suggest that uh, when they would go in, they would, uh, they would tether you uh, so that if something happened to you in there and you died, they could pull you back out uh, because in case you were defiled in some way, uh, they were concerned about such things. 
And so uh, Zachariah, on his day, he drew the short straw, so to speak, and he went in to offer prayers on behalf of the people. And outside of uh, this space, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people potentially, who are praying that God would show up because they're so frustrated with Rome. Their uh, apocalyptic fever was as high as it had been. People were hoping that God would do again what God did like with Moses in the Exodus. And they're thinking, well, you, you, you took care of Pharaoh, the superpower back then. Why can't you do it now? And so they were just really hoping that that would happen and praying for it outside the temple. And that's where we catch up with the story on the front of your bulletin. So while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So this is taking place, and as soon as Zechariah hears this, uh, he does something to the angel, what we refer to now as mansplaining. Do you know what mansplaining is? Mansplaining is when a guy typically uh, states obvious things <laughs> to the person talking to him as if they were too dense to know it in the first place. And so he starts off just simply mansplaining about the fact that Elizabeth was too old to have kids, as if the angel hadn't just said she's going to have a child even though she's up in years. <laughs> but Zachariah feels the need to explain such things. And he probably, we only have so much of the recording uh, for us, he probably took issue with naming the kid John. My name's Zachariah. Why would I name this kid John? I'm going to name him Zeke Jr., obviously. You know, that's, that's how it's supposed to go. And so he probably has all kinds of things to say, and he's probably got questions about this Nazarite vow stuff because the alcohol thing's mentioned, but should we ever cut his hair? Is that a thing we should look at? All sorts of other questions he would have because that's what men do. We mansplain, and we just go on and on and on. And so the angel, after Zachariah's mansplaining, did what women world wide would love to do anytime they're mansplained, the angel muted Zechariah, <laughs> which is awesome. Don't you wish you could get that switch, right? And so Zechariah, for the next nine plus months, is muted. <laughs> he can't talk. And so that's probably why Elizabeth was able to go full term. <laughs> she didn't have the stress of mansplaining from Zachariah. So Zachariah can't talk. The baby's finally born. Uh, it's time to dedicate him. And so they ask Elizabeth, what are we going to name this kid? And she blurts out, his name will be John. And there are other male folk religious leaders standing around. And guess what they started to do? 
mansplain. <laughs> you can't name him John. There's no John in your lineage. What are you talking about? And it's at that point that Zachariah pulled out a chalkboard or something and scribbled, his name will be John. And that shocked everybody. And as soon as he wrote that and showed everybody, the mute button came off. We're not sure how Elizabeth felt about that. <laughs> but everybody at that moment knew that something really profound had happened, obviously, to Elizabeth and Zachariah. And now he could finally talk about it. He could talk about what he experienced in that inner chamber of the temple when an angel of God spoke to him. And I just want to point out an obvious thing here. But this, up until that point, this was not something that happened. This is not a normal Tuesday morning or Saturday morning or Friday evening thing for an angel of God to show up to the guy who's lighting the incense to let them know that something crazy was about to take place in their life. And that's my point. They could not have anticipated it. Zachariah and Elizabeth could not have expected it. Nobody could have said, hey, be looking for Gabriel to show up and make this announcement while you're lighting the incense because it was unprecedented for something exactly like this to happen again. And they discovered that perhaps, perhaps God speaks in ways that we could not anticipate. Perhaps God shows up in ways that we could never, ever dream of or imagine of. And even though this is an old couple who is faithful and on one level, you would suggest that perhaps they're the perfect recipients of such a message because of their faithfulness. This other despairing piece of their lack of children was such a deeply painful thing that suggested that God had an issue of some kind that it reminds us that even when we're in despair and even when we feel like there's something wrong, even though we don't know what it is, that God shows up anyway. Because God showing up is always about who God is, not about who you are or who I am. Your failures, your mistakes, that does not deter God from being God in your life. And yet I wonder, I wonder how often we're like Zachariah and Elizabeth, where we just have an assumption and maybe God's not going to speak to us anymore. You know, Lynn and I, we've been married uh, in May. It'll be 30 years. And there are times uh, when I make mistakes, believe it or not. <laughs> and she's looking for the mute button, right? <laughs> and, you know, in my uh, particularly colorful moments, uh, there, may, there may be extended periods of silence where uh, she doesn't really want anything to do with me uh, for a while. And that's human. And that's okay, and we are real human beings, and that's, that's human nature. And we get over it, and we forgive each other, and we move on. But sometimes I wonder if, if we feel like our error has been so egregious that God has forever chosen to give us the silent treatment. And after a while, when we believe that, especially if we have a very clear preconceived idea of how God is going to speak to us, how God is going to show up. 
I wonder if after a while we stop even looking and we stop wondering. So my encouragement for you today kind of builds on the construct idea is, is it possible? Is it possible that God has actually been in your midst? God has been moving in you, around you, perhaps speaking to you even very much at work in your life. And you just didn't even know it because you just didn't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. I'm not blaming you or me about this, that this also is human nature, but is it possible that we just didn't have the capacity to pick up on it because of our pain? And then the next story, of course, uh, is uh, Mary, different end of the spectrum. And we have the start of her story here. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed. Mary, I love that. Confused and disturbed. Absolutely. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, even though your fiancé's name is Joseph. (laughs) He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. In this story, we have a whole different kind of situation, unexpected when God chose to show up. Instead of a very faithful old couple, now we have a very young couple that is legally tied together, but the marriage has not been consummated yet. Uh, That's the rule back in those days. So probably a prearranged marriage. She's maybe, could be as young as 12, could be 13 or 14 years old, but not likely older than that. She's waiting on Joseph to make enough bank to be able to afford them to be married. And they're not going to be married until he can do it, which is not easy because he's a carpenter. And carpenters didn't make a lot of coin back in the day. Uh, He was doing the best he could, but it was going to take a while. And so when she hears this message, this nonsense about all that's going to happen and hears that the Lord is going to come upon her and all this, what does that mean, all that? uh, It again causes us to wonder, um, how could she have ever expected such a thing to happen? And the answer is she couldn't have. There's no way she could have anticipated what was about to go down. Now, just a nerd moment here on this to, to speak into a the problematic issue that we have here. I'm just going to spend just a second on this because it it does come full circle. So one way to think about this is, is we read it at face value uh, that somehow God did something uh, to Mary and the spirit of God uh, played the part of the male and Mary was the recipient. And so you have this God child uh, growing within her, which technically is a demigod, Uh, which is problematic uh, in Jewish theology because Jewish theology did not have any room 
for such things. And so sometimes we wonder, and scholars still to this day debate, what is the actual origin of Jesus? What do we do with that? Some people on one end of the spectrum just say, take it on faith. That's what it says. I believe it. That settles it. Let's move on. Merry Christmas. Other people are like, well, I'm not quite sure what this means, uh, but we're willing to kind of be in limbo on this. And because it's so unknown, it's mysterious. We're just going to leave it as one of those unknown until we know someday. And other people are on the other end of the spectrum who are saying that kind of thing just doesn't happen. Uh, This doesn't make any sense. And so it probably didn't happen that way. Uh, Yep, Mary got pregnant somehow. She's credited with being the mother of Jesus. So obviously she's the mom, but how she got pregnant, we're not quite sure. Uh, Could have been Joseph, probably not likely. Could have been a Roman soldier, not uncommon for their day. And so people have this wonder, well, what if, what if Jesus' father was not the Holy Spirit or, or whatever? And here's what, here's what that would leave us with for a moment. Again, I just I don't want this to be the focus. don't want to ruin your Christmas. But what if part of the deal is that no matter what we go through, if it is this, um, just as it says, just in very plain language, that something happened between the Holy Spirit and, Jesus, and Mary and we got Jesus, or if it's something in between, or just the opposite of that, and it's actually a horror type of thing. What if part of the message here is that God was in the midst, no matter what? That if it was this holy thing that we imagine it might have been, that one's real easy to say, okay, well, we can kind of feel good about that, and yet it's sort of intrusive, but God was sort of present in a way we hadn't anticipated. And if it was a horrific act over here, We don't want to see God in any of that. And yet, if God is everywhere at all the time in all situations, then while God certainly wouldn't condone such behavior, God would not be absent from it either because God is everywhere at all all times. And with that in mind, Mary, from that perspective, if that is what happened, she could come to grips with this, come to peace with this and say, I hate what happened. This was horrific. It shouldn't have happened. God did not want this to happen, but it did happen because somebody else exercised their will to make it so. And yet God is still with me. And for some of you, that is a very personal experience. No matter what hell we go through, my friends, while the hell may not at all be condoned by God, certainly not willed by God. God is still with us in that hell. And I think that, that is maybe the more important piece here. Because how many of us, and even Mary, we've looked at this in previous years, but even Mary, she gets this message. Do you think that made it all better? She has this glorious experience with Gabriel, you know, oh, kind of a thing. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. She comes all filled with this hope. And then she drops this news to her parents and eventually gets around to Joseph. You think they're happy campers anymore? No way. Mary went through hell on her way to giving birth to Jesus. Make no mistake. And what's the message we get, even though she's going through hell? It's that God has not abandoned her. 
God is with her anyway, because that's who God is. The final picture that we have here, and by the way, that would have been a new way of thinking. That would have been a new way of thinking back then. There wasn't room for that kind of a thought. If you were tarnished, if you were soiled, that meant that God would keep God's distance. There were laws in the book saying that if you were defiled, you couldn't be anywhere near the presence of God. And so for God to come near in this kind of a way, in this kind of experience, is profound and different, and it had no room in the way people thought until then. So the final picture we have here. That night that Jesus was born, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. There is so much here that was unanticipated that nobody would have ever guessed God would do in God showing up in the world, showing up to the graveyard shift shepherds who nobody respected. Now, all of a sudden, they're getting, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you know, singing to them, you know, in full fanfare. Uh, They're getting the show. Uh, Nobody would have thought that. If there's going to be a choir concert from the angels, it's going to be at the temple, <laughs> not in a field with a bunch of stinky sheep and the low, lowest bar uh, shepherds that they've got who are probably just kids. Nobody's going to expect God to speak to them with that kind of power. And then to announce that this, this one that, <laughs> that God is bringing into the world, where are you going to find him? What's it going to look like? Going to be wrapped in strips of cloth in a manger? We think that's cute and pretty, and it looks good on our mantles and on our shelves. But the shepherds are hearing this, and they're thinking, this should be in the temple. Or this should be, you know, in a nice hotel or maybe a palace. But in a barn, in a cave, in a feeding trough, none of this was expected. And that is my point, that if we can be comfortable with the idea that cataphatic has its place, but it also has its severe limitations. And we need to give way to a balance with apophatic, which keeps us in wonder and looking and curious at all times and open to God speaking to us because that's what God is always doing. Then the true nature of the Christmas stories that we're seeing are people who flexed with this thing, who had their minds blown, their paradigms busted apart so that they could experience God and we're still talking about it. This idea of how God interacts is critical to whether or not we even notice God interacting. Part of it has to do with the bedrock issue of theism, which most of us uh, use language about. So we talk about God up there. We talk about the man upstairs. We talk about our heavenly father up there somewhere. And in the vernacular of our culture, we talk about God acting in the world from up there. That's called theism. And there's a problem with theism. It's not entirely biblical. And so there's another idea uh, that I've been talking about here for a few years, and it's a different paradigm that is expressed in the Bible, but it's not talked about a lot because it doesn't fit the classical mold. Uh, 
and it's called panentheism. And so um, featuring my friend, uh, Andrew M. Davis, uh, who uh, has a word to say about this on a very brief video coming up now. Yeah, great question. So it's an odd term, panentheism. It comes from the, from the Greek meaning all in God. And in terms of the vernacular, it was the German philosopher about 200 years ago, Carl Frederick Cross, who, uh, who coined the term. And so the, the term has sort of stayed with us through him. It was, it was popularized largely by Charles Hartshorn, who, who was a process philosopher and who relied heavily on Whitehead's vision of God, too. Whitehead didn't use the term. Um, but as a, a concept, as a term, it, it has a very intimate conceptual a vision of God, right? So everything is within God. And you'll find that panentheists often flip the term around as well. So it's not just that all is in God, but but God is in all. So this mutual sort of in, mutual imminence is sort of the way that it's communicated. So it is, a, in terms of a concept, it's a, a sort of modern concept in terms of its etymology, but it, it reaches back to ancient, ancient intuitions about God's relationship to the world, that, that God is not some... Uh, dualistically separate entity or reality, but that God is the, the, if you want, the song of the universe, right? God is imminent in the universe, somewhat like uh, your mind is imminent in your body, right? This, this relationship of deep uh, interconnection. And so in terms of the process world, certainly John Cobb, certainly uh, David Ray Griffin, but Hartshorn before them had popularized the term. But I will say it's not just a concept that has been affirmed within the process world, right? So some people want to argue about a classical panentheism in the sense that Augustine speaking of the deep intimacy of, of God in the world. So it, it has various figures. It's a wide umbrella with different sort of expressions. But the basic idea is that, that God is in the world. The world lives through the presence of God in each, in each and every moment. And we can parse that out in, in somewhat different ways. Um, so I would begin there, but we could, we could follow that up with, with different details as well. Well, it, it's not heresy, depending on who you talk to. Um, but one thing I'd say about the Bible is that, and the great thing about it, it gives us narrative visions of God, right? When you open the Bible, you're not given all of a sudden a, a, a ready-made concept. What you're given is a portrait of a true narrative, of unfolding story of God's relationship uh, with the world. And the picture you're given is not of a God that is uninvolved or aloof or just sort of doing something else while the world unfolds. But God is intimately related in the sense that the world impacts the life of God. God grieves. God responds. God's uh, related to time in a very real way. Uh, God does new things. And so one question in thinking about how we develop concepts of God is, well, to what extent does that picture of God have to influence us thinking about a philosophical image of God? Um, and I think panentheists generally want to say that, that this intimate vision of of the world within God and God within the world is more faithful to those, those images in, in Scripture. And so you have, for example, various rabbis and, and or visions in the Proverbs and the Psalms of, of the universe singing with the life of God, that God is the lifeblood, if you want, of the whole universe. Right? It's, it doesn't give you a, a particular concept right there, but it's, it's an intuition of the intimacy that's at stake. Um, or the New Testament, right? the language of, of Paul in, in Acts when he's, quoting the, the famous pagan poet, in whom we live and move and have our being. Mm -hmm. But this is not a God that's separate from us. So 
in any, in any deep, deep sense. And on that, I mean, these different images of God are developed. So theism tends to be understood as God, and it's separate from the world and occasionally present if God wants to be, right? A deism would be a sort of similar vision of that. And pantheism, as another philosophical term, theological term, is almost the direct opposite of that, that there is no distinction between God and the world, um, that God and the world are one and the same. And I think what both of those lose, and I think uh, what Christian theologians have been right to say, is that relationality is taken out of each of those in a deep way. So, so panentheism becomes a framework for preserving the relationality between God and the world as an intimate, unfolding narrative relationship. Um, as you and I are related in some way, we're impacting each other, and the road is, is, a, is a, it, it's a, it's a tango, right? It takes two to tango. It's not just uh, one acting on the other without the other's response. So that's a long-winded version way to say that, you know, panentheism has this intimate narrative embedded. And in that way, it becomes a framework for understanding the narratives of Scripture. Uh, and we can add, you know, a certain tradition, reason, experience, the Wesleyan quadrilateral to that as well. But Scripture, on the most hand, is going to say that God's picture is not one that is un un uninvolved, but that God is moving towards the world in every single moment, right? And this is this Advent theme that, that we can sort of get to if you want. So there's this classic response. Uh, you hear this in apologetic circles. When somebody poses a question to uh, presumably a Christian uh, saying they don't believe in God, that a, a good response to that is, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And I want to ask you, tell me about the God that you struggle to believe in. Because could it be uh, that the images of God that you have or the constructs of God that you have need to be messed with? It's not a fortress, but needs to be messed with so that you can develop the capacity to see and hear and feel and sense and think uh, in relationship with God. Sometimes we get bored with the Christmas story because like the whole church just slows down into a couple of chapters <laughs> for four weeks. Uh, I used to struggle with this. I've been, this is my 27th Christmas as a pastor leading a church in this kind of stuff, looking at the same verses <laughs> 27 times, you know, for four weeks in a row, whatever that math turns out to be. And uh, frankly, I have to tell you that when I begin thinking about it, usually in October, November, somewhere in there about, well, where am I, where am I going? What, what is sitting with me? Um, usually I kind of come into it with some uh, Christmas. <laughs> Doesn't that give you hope? Uh, but what invariably happens is there's always a new thing. There's always something fresh that I hadn't really thought about before because I couldn't yet or because times have changed, or because I've changed, or, or what have you. So what God of Christmas are you bored with? Tell me about that God, because maybe you don't have to settle for that anymore. Tell me about the God that seems so shallow to you, because maybe in sharing about that shallow God, you'll start to find out the depths of who this God is, and just how far that can take us. Tell me about the God who is disappointed, and let's talk about the God who is there even in our disappointment and shows up in ways that are profound. 
this is the, the communication forward, the lesson from those who helped craft this story for us. Be curious, be open, be ready to be surprised. Be aware that you're blind. Be aware that you have a fixed way of thinking about things that is going to limit you from seeing other things. Let this story inspire you to wonder anew, how might God be at work right now in the world, in my life, in the people around me, in the creation around me, and how can I get in on the dance? Because that's where life is, and it's awesome. There's this uh, translation of Psalm 93 yeah, that a colleague of mine sent me. A guy named Stephen Mitchell translated it. And if you read Psalm 93 in whatever Bible you have, it doesn't look anything like this. But I think he actually got to the heart of it. He says, God acts within every moment and creates the world with each breath. He speaks from the center of the universe in the silence beyond all thought. Mightier than the crash of a thunderstorm, mightier than the roar of the sea, is God's voice silently speaking in the depths of the listening heart. May we all have hearts that listen. Let's pray together. So God, as we wrap week two on this adventure of Advent, may we have a curiosity and a hunger uh, to follow in the footsteps of those who gave us the story in the first place and be open to being surprised. How boring would it be, God, if we got the same thing over and over again? But that's not who you are. And so since that's not who you are, God, give us a hunger, a capacity, a curiosity, a wonder anew that we would be able to see, feel, hear, sense you at work in our being because you are. You are. You can't not be at work in our lives. So help us see you, identify you, and join you in what you're doing. Be with us now. Help us follow in the footsteps of Jesus, which leads us to life. And we, we choose to honor that desire in praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, next week, we've got a special guest coming in. Actually, it's five. Uh, we are having the San Francisco Brass here for a 30-minute concert next Sunday. Be very good. It will also be safe. Uh, we're going to turn on our exhaust fan, which sits back here, and it's going to suck all the stuff this way. Uh, so anything coming out of their horns is not going to be a problem, but come for a very Christmassy concert. They are awesome. We've had them many times. You're going to love it. Bring your friends, and it'll be great. All right. Thanks for coming. See you next week.